Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I'm fascinated by the sudden appearance of the word automation in people's job titles, because it sounds futuristic, but I kind of wonder whether it'll be like VP of electricity, uh, ultimately. Yeah, you know, it's really funny you say that, Mike. Um, so I, I think I, I react to that in a couple of different ways. One, I'm not surprised that we, we're seeing new titles coming up, because anytime a new innovation or a new disruptive technology comes in, jobs get built around it, new skills get like developed. Like VP of digital, right? Yeah, VP of digital, you know, VP of manufacturing. Manufacturing didn't exist when we were horse and buggy, right? right? So I, I'm not surprised by that. But, but the comment about electricity is fascinating to me because I would almost liken the automation we're seeing right now as truly at the beginning of a long journey. Right. Right. It, you know, I ask myself, you know, is, are we in the beginning of an electricity disruption or, you know, are we in the same stage where the internet was back in, you know, I guess early 80s, early 90s, right? When they first brought electricity into manufacturing plants, it, it it took us a while to reframe our expectations around the, the true potential of that technology. It did. It actually took, I, I vaguely remember reading something the other day. It took maybe 30 or 40 years before it became mainstream. Right. So when when it was discovered, and I think it was Edison that made the first plant, the first electricity generating plant, and tried to distribute that electricity to the manufacturing plants, um, they were, didn't accept it. They, they didn't see the potential of electricity. In fact, they didn't understand that they could redesign their entire, entire floor plants, the whole manufacturing supply chain, right? The workflow would change. It would be designed around the people instead of around the machines. So traditionally, their assembly lines were, were all about how the steam was organized, not right. how the work was performed. <laughs> and then when electricity came by, they could minimize all the manufacturing components and they could take the typewriter or the sewing machine or whatever, the typewriter is the wrong example, but the sewing machine and put it with the worker wherever was most convenient. So it's fascinating. I'm having a coffee with uh, George Kumarski, uh, who is the uh, head of uh, automation and financial services for the Americas for EY. Uh, we're in their very cool uh, wave space collaboration mecca that they've created here in Chelsea in uh, New York and uh, George uh, you know this is this is this is obviously an area of, of great interest to me and um, you know just to pick up on this theme of the introduction of electricity do you feel that in some ways today uh, people are making the same mistake in that they've essentially got steam-powered designed organizations <laughs> and 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 looking at automation as this shiny new tool but haven't really come to terms yet with the potential for redesigning their organizations? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, it's, it's a very astute observation. I do fundamentally believe that we are underappreciating under the full transformative power of this automation and all the automation techniques. Uh, right now, it's, it's shiny. It's exciting. You could see the tactical advantage it can provide an organization. Right. I don't think we fully understand the 
opportunity sitting in front of us of how we can redesign and rethink fundamentally the way we perform work day in and day out. Because it is it is dangerously seductive, this idea that, okay, you, you basically can use robotic process automation, you can eliminate X percentage of your staff and, and, and kind of you know work 24-7 much more cheaply. But in, in doing that, it's sort of a once-off benefit, isn't it? It, it is, and, and to your point, I mean, it's seductive. It's, yeah. it's, it's sexy to cut costs, but the reality is I, I think we need to think differently. This is a fundamental shift in productivity, right? We are removing you know, the arguably soul-sucking work that we do day in and day out, and we are going to advance the productivity of the workforce and of the human by looking at the creative side, the judgmental, allow freeing humans to use the most powerful tool they have, which is the brain. And I don't think we fully appreciate what we can do and how we can design our organizations and the work we do when we remove all that mundane activity. Uh, you know, I've spoken to a lot of leaders in a lot of different organizations and, and, and very few of them have a comprehensive plan for not just automating but elevating their, their people. So, you know, they, they talk about freeing up work, but the reality is the new kinds of work that require to be done are very different from the manual entry Right. process-based work that those people were doing in the past. That's right. And I think we have to teach people how to think differently. Right. Right. I mean, we all joke about, you know, having to help our parent, grandparent, you know, insert name here, how to use a VCR. Right. And now as a parent myself, I look at how my children interact with technology and how they think is very, very different than I do. Yeah. And I don't consider myself that old yet. Um, and so I think that's the same kind of thinking we need to be th applying at work. What is the new thinking? Uh, I, I mean, if you're, if you're now working with machine learning systems that are gener generating recommendations, uh, what, what is the, the kind of new level of expertise or analytical capability? It's exactly that, Mike. Right. Uh, it, it is anal it's analytical, it's logical deduction, it's data science, it's probabilistic you know, thinking. It is, it's no longer let me grab a spreadsheet and add one, two, and three together and put it in there. I've got to think. You, you don't need to know how to program, though, but you, you might need to understand about, you know, confidence margins. That's right. Well, That's right. Uh, confidence indicators are going to be a big variable in making a judgment. So let me give you an example. Like, very rudimentary. In today's world, we may have a group of workers, let's call it 10 people, sitting in the office doing the same activity. So there are 10 cubes. We're all sitting together, and there's one person at the head of the cubes, and that person is the manager in charge of them. Yeah. Right? And today, they all do the same thing. And if there's a lot of work, they stay past 5 o'clock to get that work done. If there's not a lot of work, they leave early. There's an anomaly. Someone gets out of their chair and walks over to the manager and goes, hey, I saw a data anomaly. I don't know what to do. And we talk about it. Right? Now fast forward, and we, we apply automation in this same scenario. And in the future, we may still have that one person at the head of the cubes. We may have one or two people sitting there, but we're going to have eight machines doing something somewhere, either in those cubes or out in the data center or across the world. But they're doing that same work much faster, right? But all the visual, oratory, and even, you know, emotional connection is gone. Those signals are gone. All those visual cues. They're gone, right? right? So how do I know our workload, our transaction volume just went up? My, my team's not staying here past five o'clock. The robot got it done in five minutes, maybe seven minutes. Am I paying attention to the difference between five and seven minutes? Do I, am I missing a signal? And so kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, we need to teach 
our people to think differently. The manager at the head of those cube at the cubes needs to think about and be able to interpolate signals differently. And so those analytical functions have to be very different than they are today. Right. And is that is that a function of better system design, or is it we have to push that back onto people? It's come honestly, it's a combination of both. Right. I, I would argue, uh, and I've been contemplating this for a while. I just haven't verbalized it enough. But I think we need to instrument our processes differently. Yeah. Much like you would take a very complex, you know, power plant, nuclear plant, or whatever, we or or electric grid, where we are instrumenting every node. Um, Connection point, etc. You know, to provide those signals back to the central, you know, control room. We probably need to do a better job of that in our future business processes and in, in mainstream business world, so that that person at the head of the cubes. Because, it, because in actual fact, you know, to use your analogy, the real value isn't someone spotting that there is a red light on a process. That's right. It, it's being able to contextualize what that means. That's right. Uh, because you know, if you if, if if something is detectable, you could have another machine essentially monitoring it. Right. But but you're going to need a human being kind of go. Well, the fact that these processes are all overloading probably means there's a higher level issue going on or a process design issue. That's right. It's not exception based management. Yeah. It's more pattern recognition that we're going to need to teach our people right. to understand better. And so that's where I go back to, you know, what kind of skills are we going to need in the future? It's not read a report. It's read data and see and be able to interpret what that data is saying because machines are producing data for us. Yeah. And we'll get better over time and you know, we'll be able to aggregate and create better insights for our people. But I think honestly that we need to be more mathematical as we yeah, go so forward. Pattern recognition is an interesting is an interesting concept because in a way that's exactly what deep learning systems can do better than us. Mm -hmm. But there's a different level of pattern recognition. It's almost contextual that's right. Uh, contextual recognition in, in that a machine, from a black box standpoint, can recognize a pattern, but it doesn't necessarily know what that means to us. That's right. And you know, it's fascinating. I don't know if I if I can support this assertion completely, but I I would think that the intuitive part of people is one that we haven't figured out how to replicate machines. Now, will we get there one day? Probably. Well, maybe intuition is just a form of um, deep learning. It could be. You it know, that th th we, 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 we don't, it, it's a non-visible process in our own minds. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, one of the things that you, you talk about, and I, I've read some fascinating white papers that you guys have put out, is around the um, automation paradox. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, gosh. Uh, like, what, 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 where do companies go wrong when they think about automation? Uh, too myopic. First reaction, you know, in my mind is we, we are tactical in the application of this technology. Arguably, we see a technology, we get really excited about it, we pick it up, it's a shiny hammer, and we're going to run around and hit everything with it. Right. Um, it, it and it's, it's what I would call tool-based thinking, right? I picked up a screwdriver, I picked up a hammer, I picked up a wrench. And to me, that's the first time I've ever seen it, and I'm going to figure out how to use it. I don't understand its limits, but you know that hammer looks like it can fix the plumbing under my sink. Uh, not sure that's the right answer. And so we're, what we're seeing is, you know, almost an unbridled enthusiasm for the technology, and not necessarily taking a step back and going, "Look, this is what we're trying to solve for from a business strategy perspective," and the consequences of that mean that we need to change these areas of our organization. And gosh, you know what? We have a new new arrow in the quiver or a new tool in the toolbox that we should be applying. And so to me, 
the the thinking needs to change. It's right. no longer tool based. It needs to be, you know, journey based, process based, customer based, strategy based. And then in the very last moment, should we ask ourselves, is automation a variable we can apply or part of the solution we can apply? Because you know, RPA is not the only form of automation, right? Sure, certainly not. And our, so that's another interesting. So you bring up RPA, robotic process automation. Um, it is. It has been a hot topic for the last several years. Um, it's arguably commoditized in a way. Uh, I wouldn't say it's broad adoption yet, but I think people generally understand it. What's interesting about that, you know, when people first got it, they saw returns and uh, time to market that were incredible, months. We're measuring in weeks and months of value, not yeah. years of typical systems implementation. The, the challenge is they thought RPA can solve every automation problem that we saw. And in fact, we would argue is that automated robotics is one of probably 10 to 11 trending techniques to include uh, traditional business process management, chatbots, natural language processing, artificial intelligence, uh, digital forms. I mean, you, you, there's a whole portfolio, deep learning you mentioned earlier, um, that you put together and you can say, you know what, I've got a set of tasks and activities that a group of individuals performs across the organization. And we can automate, let's say, pick up a large percentage of those. Well, do I use robotics? Do I use machine learning? Do I use a chatbot? We need to ask ourselves which is the right tool for which task. And, and this has to be this has to ultimately lead from a, a design standpoint, right? It does. So I mean, if you if you really are, let's say, VP of automation for a big organization today, you you've got those those two roles. One is you know, organizational design, like does this process even need to exist and what should it look like? And then the second piece is, how do I orchestrate a suite of tools to potentially get there? Right, and so uh, so if I had that role, if I was the yeah. VP of automation or, or, or whatever it may be, I, I think there are two fundamental things I gotta deal with. I've gotta stand up the core capability of these tool sets, and then I need to make sure that we're applying them in the right way. And in that application of the tools is where I think a lot of organizations today are still learning how to do that. And there we would argue that you really want to be process first or customer first or journey driven first. You would ask yourself, here's a process. What does journey driven mean? Oh, so take a look at the ultimate stakeholder of that process, right? If it's a customer facing process, look at it from a customer perspective. If it's an employee based process, look at it from an employee's perspective. Think about what they are trying to get out of the process and map out their their journey in that process, their expectation. Right. And then look at the process and steps and activities that exist today to support them. And then ask the basics. Should that process or that step or activity exist? If it does, can we streamline it? Can we deflect it? This is the big risk, isn't it? That um, uh, companies are rushing in to implement automation, but they're actually just baking in 20th century processes and approaches, you know, with, with basic levels of digitization. It is a true digital transformation. Yeah, the thought-provoking question I would I would put back to you know your audience and you know our colleagues out there in the industry is uh, just because I could automate, should I? Right. That's that's a question I would always start with. Right. Should this process even exist? Well, yeah, so yeah, maybe even further, yeah, take a step back even further, you're right. Should this even exist? Why does it exist? But if I can automate, do I really need to? I guess going back to our, you know, where we open this conversation, which is how do you avoid the, the steam-powered organizational model? What could organizations look like in 10 years? I mean, you know, I was speaking to someone else around this uh, who, who, essentially, who essentially said, and I think this is very true, that... Uh, 
silos exist because people exist. I mean, so much of our organizational structure is based on our own uh, limited thinking around the organization of tasks. Yeah. And, and it's got nothing to do with you know, either the employee or the customer, the, the, the person who's actually using the process. Yeah. Do, do we actually need all this stuff to run a company? Yeah, well, so some of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The yeah. stuff is there because we... Because we're there. Because we're there and we organized around it. You know, and I also think that, you know, you have to look at fundamental business models, right? We have organized a lot of our companies around being product-centric instead of being customer-centric. And you see that big major shift occurring. Um, and if you look at that shift, the techniques and the processes and the organizations will likely shift just by going customer first instead of right. product first. Right? I mean, essentially, we were we were manufacturers, right? Yeah, that's right. And actually, because I know you're in financial services, I mean, I'm always fascinated when financial services companies describe themselves as manufacturers as well. Yeah, you know, they manufacture financial products that's because it, I think it some way leads them down the wrong path in terms of organization. Yeah, could be. Uh, it, what's interesting is I think most of our financial services organizations are now shifting themselves to be more customer, actually more technology-based companies. Okay, uh, fascinating because I think they're recognizing the shift in the consumer or you know organ, uh, enterprise buying behavior and the expectation of nimbleness and agileness and the, you know the finicky nature of the consumer these days yeah. uh, in the future you know generations and so the pivot for a lot of these organizations. It's not just from product to customer, but it's also to you know, being technologically driven. Well, it's definitely better to be valued as a platform rather than a certainly. product manufacturer. That's right. That's right. I guess where I'm trying to go with this is try to understand where the next step is because there's a big difference between being an automation-enabled organization and being an AI-first one. Yeah. So that's and this goes to the question of, of the degrees to which we can automate judgment and decision making. Right. So it, it, to me, I think it's a little bit of a journey, Mike. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. Am I, you know, an AI-based company or a, you know, a deterministic automation-based company? I think it's it's both. Frankly, the first step is you pick off the easy stuff, right? You, you and you you use that to understand the consequences of the automation that you're going to put in place, like which I think are far-reaching, right? But if you look at, you know, most organizations right now see the value in the deterministic automation. It's very achievable. It's very manageable. Uh, it's also a little more risk averse. What's the difference between deterministic and probabilistic automation? Money? No, I'm joking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Effort, uh, confidence. Um, so, well, deterministic is pretty straightforward. It's We're looking at automating a bunch of very conditional decision logic. If this, then that. I can always predict the outcome of a deterministic model, right? And with that, there's a degree of confidence in managing risk, in managing customer expectations. I can predict what's going to happen. You can map it out like a decision tree. Basically. I really can. And, and honestly, the only difference is it's just going to happen a lot faster than when humans were involved, and probably, probably with a higher degree of consistency, right? It may be wrong, but it'll be wrong faster and consistent across everything. With probabilistic automation and the AI and the deep, lear uh, the deep learning, machine learning and all that, it becomes a lot more difficult for us to have confidence in what the output is going to be. Right. We can always recreate it, but it takes, there's more complexity. And with that, we have to you know, surround that automation with a bunch of controls and confidence levels and people overseeing those processes, et cetera, and it just becomes a lot more complex. So when I said it's a journey, I fully expect that we're going to do the deterministic stuff first, 
because it's easier, it's faster, it's less scary, and it gives us more time to adapt as a human workforce around that. Yeah. With the AI, the potential of that is incredible. And if you add in my, you know, the disruption of quantum computing when it really becomes mainstream, and you add AI, I mean, that the rate of change in the impact of our organizations will be, it'll be scary is the wrong word. It's just going to be. I'll be awestruck and to watch that. The, the fascinating thing about the probabilistic automation is, is that there is an important dynamic between the human machine workflow. Because it's not just the job of the person to kind of um, keep a watchful eye over the recommendations right. generated by the system. The job of the human is actually to train that system. That's right. Uh, with their contextual understanding to improve it with time. And then that, in, in some ways, that's where companies are developing their advantage by acting early because they can build up this years of, of essentially training systems on their own people's uh, knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting you bring that up. You know, as you just said that, it kind of sparks a thought for me a little bit. I, is it really an either or, right? Is it... The, between what and what? Between AI and people? Or is it the power really when you put the two of them together to work side by side? And you said the point, you know, the people will help teach the machines and you know guide them in the right direction um, and I think that's the case I mean that truly is going to be where the benefit is uh, but if I just said you know let's teach the machine to do this process and then walk away yeah I it will never be able to I, well I shouldn't say never but we can't and it, may, it may not be its ultimate uh, it may not be its ultimate purpose because I'm trying to think about the the future skill set of that manager of all these virtual resources I mean maybe in the 20th century uh, you are hiring someone with essentially good people skills and, and surveillance skills because you, you've basically got him running a, uh, he or she running a kind of a little, you know, monkey house full of people tapping all the time. Yeah, the unit, of work, and, unit of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, you, and you, you're watching that and to make sure that they're keeping an eye on that. But this new person is essentially just managing a bunch of virtual resources. They've got some pattern recognition skills, as you mentioned. They, you know, understand confidence intervals. You know, they can... But I'm wondering what else they have because... You know, part of improving that system, they'd also be able to need to think strategically about finding more appropriate data or, you know, tuning the model in some way. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, the other interesting thing is what the people are going to provide, which I'm not sure to what extent the machines can yet, is the adaptability. And, and I think, you know, where this, where this comes in, humans tend to be very connected, yeah. right? Um, I, you know, the old water cooler joke. I at some point get up, I walk to the bathroom, I stop by the kitchen, I fill, refill my water bottle, and you know, there's Mike. And Mike and I start talking, I'm like, hey, I saw my machine doing this over here. And you're like, oh yeah, you know what we're doing? And you all of a sudden, through a couple of dialogues, you're like, what if we put the two together? And now we, we bring something that the machines, which are task-oriented in that case, weren't able to provide the connection point. Maybe because they didn't have access to the data. Maybe their remit wasn't that big. Maybe we had them contained. But the human can provide that adaptability. And so the worker of the future, yeah. some of their value is going to be in thinking bigger. Someone told me this story. Um, there, there, were one of the, there were one of the partners with Tesla. And uh, they said when Elon Musk took over the factory that manufactures uh, his cars. It, it was actually a factory that had been developed by GM and Toyota. It was basically Toyota. And it, it, it was one of their classic Japanese-style, high-level quality, you know, Kanban-type manufacturing yeah. facilities. The first thing Musk did was basically automate everything. Yeah. And it turned out to be a huge mistake. Because what the Japanese had long ago realized was that just because you can automate everything doesn't mean you should. Right, goes back and to by having it. people on the line 
who were constantly able to adapt and change what they did and bring insight into thinking about how to improve the process, that's where you got the productivity from. That's right. And it's interesting you say that because you know the first thing that went to my mind as you're saying that is the future worker, and we see this in our business right now, we see it in our, our clients and our colleagues, they're, they're adapting this, allowing people to test, learn, and fail. Like all of a sudden it is in vogue to fail. The, the word is fail fast and that's okay. But um, it's kind of interesting that, you know, about the, the Tesla plant, like try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, you know, shift and do things differently. And I think the, the worker of the future will have to be comfortable in failure in a way. Yeah. And that's where we're gonna learn. Because, it, because it's another exercise in finding data. It is, in a way, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a it's a data-driven experiment. That's right. that's right. So when you look at your clients that are the most progressed down this path, what are some of the things they're doing and what's been their approach? So the, the most interesting ones are the ones who are not, the ones who are advancing the agenda quickly didn't necessarily put as much weight on the value proposition. Um, they saw it as an innovation agenda. First year, don't worry if you make money. Don't worry if you're because the value proposition traditionally has been around cost. Hasn't it, it is, you know, well, particularly with the RPA stuff, with the robotic yeah. stuff, it's always been about cost takeout, you know, or or shifting hours of work or returning hours to the business. But at the end of the day, it's taking FTE, making it, you know, VTE. That's right. That's right. Making it a VTE, and that FTE goes on and do something else, whether yeah. inside or outside of the organization. Um, what's interesting is the, the the progressive thinkers right now are. Um, they're accelerating the learning in those capability sets. So how fast can I learn how to apply robotics? How fast can I test with AI? Let me, let me empower the organization. Go play with the technology. Um, those are the ones I think are learning first and then applying second. Right. Um, those who perhaps, if I drew two scale, you know, two graphs side by side, those who went after the business cases, um, their adoption was a lot steeper, but they plateaued. In you know in their future adoption, whereas those that are playing with the technology now are realizing the applicability in multiple different scenarios and learning how to bring these different techniques together, and then their their curve, while shallower in the beginning, will hit steepness and then continue to grow. And has this those ones who have experimented has it affected the way they've seen things like outsourcing? Because because in some ways this goes directly to the heart of the traditional. Um, you know, global uh, business process outsourcing movement, which would, you know, yeah. the whole your mess for less. Yeah, so this is your mess for less, uh, faster, right? Uh, yeah. Cheaper, faster, whatever. Um, so I, I think on the outsourcing thing, it, it, it's a little bit more of an existential threat to the outsourcer, but the reality is it's driving productivity within the outsourcer because they're adopting automation in their own operations. And the expectation between the the company and the outsourcer is that the company expects to see those value and the returns yeah. back to ourselves before and more visibility uh, more I, transparency I think, because I think that's always been the issue is that you haven't really known exactly how they've done the process what systems they're using where your data is that's right well so <clears> the the interesting consequence of that now and the debate in the industry is okay if my outsourcer is automating and I want to break that relationship who owns the IP of the automated process, oh, the bot. Is, right. Does the outsourcer own it or do I own it as a company because I've been paying for that? Where, where is the actual IP here? It's not the bot itself, it's, it's, the, it's the workflow, right? Well, is it? 
Yeah, well, uh, that's the question, right? Yeah. The, the question. Like, what's the valuable part of it? Well, so if I wanted to break that relationship, yeah, right. It's not like I can rebadge all those employees and bring them back in house or rebadge them to another outsourcer. Yeah, right. They're they're not. It, it actually raises a, a, an even more fascinating dimension to this, which is. You know, where is the organizational value of an operating model in the future? If it's these patterns, algorithmic yeah. patterns, uh, then that, that has incredible value because that's what actually determines your competitiveness or productivity over another organization. Right. So it goes back to what we said earlier. It's, you know, how do we value a company? What are our assets in the future? Because a lot of times we'll say our assets are, you know, it's our intellectual property and the product we develop yeah. or the people that we have or whatever. In the future, these algorithms, are they our assets? And in an outsource relationship, have I just given away my assets to someone else? So th this could be one of the first areas where we see that tested, essentially. You yes. Know, where the real value yeah, yeah, so really. I, I think that's going to be a battlefield for the lawyers in the future. <laughs> be fascinating. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.